Welcome to the Foolish Adventure Show, where guru hype is banned, lifetime value of a customer is king, and the internet business has replaced the J-O-B as the path to financial success and personal freedom. Now, here's straight talk about making a living online with your host, Tim Conley. Welcome to another episode of The Foolish Adventure Show. I'm your host, Tim Conley, and I've got a special guest here by the name of James Shramko, another Aussie friend that I've been able to get onto the show here. James has been doing some really great work in the internet marketing world, and the reason I I really wanted him on here, because as people know, I try to stay away from a lot of the traditional IM kind of stuff on this show. But the reason I I really like what James is doing is he's running real companies. He's running companies that are providing services to other businesses like web design, search engine optimization. He's doing and and doing very well at these at these companies. So that's why I wanted to have him on here because his story is is fantastic and and I'll definitely get James to tell you that story on here and how he goes about actually running these companies. So, what's up, James? Hey, Tim. I'm uh, hanging out here in the south of France on holidays. Uh, that is a nice place to be right uh, this time of year. When you told me you were in Europe, I said, oh my gosh, I hope you're in this uh, in southern Europe. <laughs> well, I've actually been to uh, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, and now in France, and then I head over to London before I go home. Let's get into this uh, the real part of this conversation. So I'm, I'm going to be honest. When, when, I first, when I first heard of you, oh gosh, I think this is probably 2006, may, maybe 2000, early 2007, somewhere in there. Maybe I think it was a, a Yannick Silver interview. And I, in, in my head, just pegged you as just a, an, an easy money guy, uh, another one trying to sell like anything to make easy money online. And I've learned since then, complete misperception of, of who you are and what you do. And what really changed my, my perception of you, because I really hadn't followed you much for a long time, and then I discovered Freedom Ocean Podcast and got to listen to you and, and the things that you were saying about how to run a company, your, the story of how you built your company. And I was like, wow, this, uh, this guy is, is the real deal. I'm, I'm really surprised that I developed a perception of you that was completely, completely off base. And so you, and you didn't know this. So I, you know, for that, I apologize. I, I think I think I could have learned a ton more from you ages ago if I'd have just had more of an open mind and tried to reach out to you, you know, four or five years ago. But uh, so now now we're on here. Let's let's talk about that story of of how you got started because you uh, used to run a dealership, right? A car yeah. dealership. Yeah, I came up through um, the Mercedes Benz sort of um, retail business. So I, uh, it. It sort of goes back to about 17 years ago when my wife fell pregnant and we're going to have our first kid and I was in an administration job which paid $35,000 a year and I needed to make a lot more money because she was also on $35,000 a year. So it's uh, two of us making $70,000 and we're about to be three people on one income and the obvious solution was I had to get into sales. So I went and I got myself a job selling BMWs, my first sales job ever. And from that job, I worked my way through sales, sales management, and eventually into general management. And I had a real ability to run these businesses in in some cases up to $100 million a year in sales revenue. And that was my foundation uh, of business experience. And as it turns out, motor dealerships, look simple from the outside but they are an extremely complex business and that is because you sell stock you sell time you sell money in terms of finance and you're also dealing wholesale and retail and you're also dealing with the local market but also a national brand so you've got so many different experiences wrapped up in that one role 
Well, and you you also have the finance, uh, not not just the finance to the consumer, but the finance for all that inventory. That is a that's millions of dollars sitting on the lot. Oh yeah, you have twenty one million dollars worth of cars sitting on the lot that is aging. So it is like a ticking time bomb when you purchase a vehicle. The day you purchase it, it starts to get old, and you know six months later, that is just like the death. And a year later, if it if it actually turns a year old and has a birthday, as we would call it, then it's probably worth ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars less than what you paid for it. So you have this urgency and massive amount of pressure. And here's the thing that most people don't realize is that the average motor dealership is probably making around about a one to two percent profit based on their sales revenue. Wow. Well, I, I, I didn't know that. Uh, I briefly worked as a car salesman in my early days because I wanted to learn how to sell. And I said, you know, what place could I really get an education on selling face to face? And, and so I took a job selling selling uh, Lincoln uh, Lincoln navigators and <laughs> stuff like that uh, in in the northwest in 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 the United States so that was a a, a really good education for me oh yeah well just dealing with the public is uh, quite insightful isn't it oh yeah and and figuring out what they what they really want and and delivering and that that was something in in this in the sales process process you were talking about and I and I heard you you talk about this in a recent interview where you were saying how you actually would find out what the people wanted and you tried to build more of a relationship with them and you ended up having repeat sales within a short period of time. And that that's something that a lot of dealerships don't focus on that, that I've met here in the United States, that they don't focus on truly building a relationship. It's a uh, a one person, one transaction, never see them ever again kind of model, which is horrible for making any real money. Well, that is exactly the problem that is in the internet marketing space. And probably why you didn't like me when you first met me is <laughs> um, by chance, my big break into the internet marketing scene was attending Yannick Silver's underground event. Uh, you know, I hopped on an airplane and flew to Los Angeles just to get closer to the action. And in doing that, I had somehow, I fell in with the current crop of um, big name internet marketers. So I guess you would have associated me with those people, but I quickly realized they were not the people I wanted to associate with because of that one-time transactional approach. And you're right, uh, my approach with selling cars and indeed now the way that I blog and uh, communicate with my own customer base is is the same premise that you had for your show. It's that lifetime customer. It is uh, ongoing news. It's building that relationship f- forever. And within a short time, my business was repeat referral. And that's reflected in my current business where I'm selling things over and over again to the same people and continually identifying what problems I can solve, what challenges can I help them out with and and innovating and developing my product lines and services to dovetail with their needs and just continually be there. And I think uh, Dan mentioned in a podcast that I was in that that lifestyle business, he had a great metaphor. It's like putting out the little, uh, the drinks at the drink stands in the marathon, you know, every time they get thirsty, I'm there with the drink stand. Right. So uh, let's let's jump into the that learning process. So, so you start off. You, you, you're in this um, uh, dad panic, right? Uh, I'm about to, I'm about to be a dad, and I need to make a lot more money. And so, what was what was that process of of becoming a sales a salesman? There is a story behind this, and it's probably a good one to share. I went through. Uh, I went to a rich private school uh, when the stock market crash in the late 80s happened and the recession came in Australia. My parents lost everything. We had to move out of the house. I, I had to go and live in the backyard of my grandfather's place. You know, that was that was a big lesson. I thought I was going to be wealthy without much effort and I was completely wrong. So I had to get a job in debt collection, which was a hot market back then. It was an office job and I was telephoning people asking for money. 
And I was really good at that for some reason. And I think that's because I'd worked with my grandfather, who was a timber broker. And he was completely blind, but he could buy and sell timber over the telephone in his backyard, which is where I happened to live. And so I picked up this, this skill to be able to negotiate over the telephone. I transferred that to the debt collection. I moved from there into a finance company through the debt collection arm ended up doing uh, credit and repossessions and uh, floor floor plan stock for dealerships like we were just talking about, going out and auditing, making sure that all their cars were there, that they th- that were supposed to be there. And from that, I uh, decided I needed a pay rise. So I got an administration job with the telephone company, Vodafone, which was starting digital telephony in, uh, in the early 90s in Australia. Okay. It's about 1993. I did that for two years, and, and when they started, they, they were an English company. What they did is they took the typical approach of a multinational. They went in and they thought, who are the best salespeople to push this digital telephony into the market? So they went and hired the best Xerox salespeople and the best uh, telecommunications salespeople who were selling the, the old uh, analog telephones, those Motorola's. And they mm-hmm. recruited the best of the best and they threw them together into a sales team and I was their administrator. So here I was with the best salespeople in the country and what I found out was some of them were quite lazy and had geared their lifestyle much better than I had. One of them had an unfortunate situation. He was driving home and a lady jumped out in front of his car and he, he nearly ran her over. She tried to commit suicide um, and the boss said, look, could you look after this guy? His family are in the country. And so he came to live with us, my wife and I, who were you know, in this two-bedroom apartment. And he was paying me half the apartment in rent. And what I observed was I'd go to work and he'd wake up late. He'd put on his shorts, go for a jog, ring through to the office, get me to fax off some orders to his customers. And I'd be processing the sale and I know that he'd be at home uh, or just <laughs> hanging out at the beach. And he was getting paid twice as much as I was. And he, he had a company car allowance. He had this f- fancy car. And I thought, you know, these salespeople, they're actually doing really well. And luckily enough for me, a couple of the salespeople took a real interest in me and they exposed me to spin selling, which is the Xerox Foundation sales training for high-priced goods and by Neil Rackham. And another guy gave me the full Brian Tracy psychology of selling set. Oh, and, nice. and what happened was people were ringing into the office and there were no salespeople there. And I started processing orders over the phone because I used my old debt collection skills. And it turned out I was selling more stuff from my administration role than the professional salespeople on twice my salary. And this human resources lady found me and she said, I'd like to profile you for selling and I said, oh, okay, if you, if you like. And she did. And it turned out I was the perfect sales profile and had this rare ability where I could actually follow through with paperwork because most salespeople are sloppy with paperwork. They're good at talking <laughs> and very bad at filling out paperwork. But my administration background coupled with telephone selling and negotiation and debt collection was the perfect recipe. So then I was really interested in this and um, – when it came time to have to increase my income, I said, look, I'd love, to, I'd love to go into the sales department. And they told me that I was too valuable in the role that I was in and that it wasn't possible. And the sales director uh, knocked, knocked it on the head and he said, it's not going to happen. And that's when I went outside the company and went down to the local BMW dealership convinced the guy to give me a job even though I had no experience and well, I want to I, I want to interrupt uh, there there was a big business lesson right there they came to you and said oh you're too valuable to this company for us to give you the kind of promotion that you should that, that would keep you here that is something when you find talent in your company you do not want to chase them away yeah that's classic command and conquer management uh, which is fear-based and it's it's holding people back because it suits you is never a good leadership thing. Uh, in my company, the opposite is true. If I find someone has a talent for something, I'll give an example. I had a link builder who can draw pictures. Her job now is to draw a picture every day for my blog. I, I switched her from a role that she was employed to do into the role that she's really good at and I encourage and, and promote. You should always, you know, 
find people's talents. If they had have put me into sales, I expect I would have been really good at it because as it turned out when I went to BMW, within 12 months, I was the number one BMW salesperson in the entire country from a standing start. And that was with without the car sales experience, without any of the bad habits that those people had. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if you have the, in, in Australia, the same, uh, same as here, but we had what's called ups, which is, uh, the guys would stand around up against the building, smoking and drinking their coffee and would wait till someone came onto the lot. And then they, uh, then they would call ups yeah, uh, well, as I, to I, who I, could go out and talk to the prospect. I detected that term uh, from the American literature that I was reading at the time. But BMW were very good at, at training. They taught people how to deal with female customers. They taught people you know, some proper selling techniques. Of course, most car salespeople just completely ignore that. They're MO or modus operandi is to pull out the stock sheet, identify the highest commission vehicle and make sure that the next up was going to own that car. And I, that was that was wrong. And I was also fortunate. I had two really good mentors. I had the new car sales manager and the used car sales manager. And they took me under their wing and they he, they trained me the right way to do it. He taught me lessons that I still use today. And um, it was like when the customer comes and it's time for them to drive, really fuss over their seating position and make sure they're comfortable and and that they can see the mirrors and that the air conditioning is just right and that the volume of the radio is right down and and that it's on the station that they would enjoy and that the seat is the right height and the steering wheel fits perfectly in there. Just those little details to make the customer experience better. Other people just ignore that stuff. Uh, yeah, a lot of people do, and and that's that's something that uh, when when I took the job trying to sell cars, uh, they told me they had a sales training program, which was uh, which turned out to be uh, go out there and sell a car, uh, which <laughs> which wasn't a really good program. So I, I started just studying everything I could about sales, and I would work like twelve hours days on the lot, six to seven days a week. And then in my free time, which wasn't much because I had a little baby girl at the time, and I would go out, study sales materials, and then put it into action. And I, I worked there for a month. I didn't really enjoy it, and and mostly because the people that I was working for, it came down to a point where there was this young couple that came in. They wanted to buy a car. They, they really weren't sure about the car, and they wanted to leave because they there wasn't what they wanted on the lot. And instead of trying to allow me to get them the kind of car that they wanted, they just wanted to sell them a car right then and there. And I started using all kinds of pressure tactics and had me sit down with them and said, let them talk to each other. But if they ever bring up the car, change the change the topic of the conversation so they can't talk about the car so we can get the financing all pre-set up for them and then they'll just sign it and we'll get them in a car. After that, I quit. I said, there's no way I'm going to be a part of a business that does not really want to sell a product that the customer really wants. But in that in that month that I worked for them, I had made more money in that first month than their their other trainees that they had ever had come in through that dealership. And it was because I spent time trying to determine what that customer really wanted and went out of my way to find a way to get them what they wanted. Uh, And good for you for for leaving because that sort of stuff makes my blood boil. It's so inhumane, just on a basic level of human interaction. It's incredibly wrong. And um, just like you, I I had uh, the highest commission check in my first full month than, than they'd ever seen, like than all the seasoned professionals get. And within three months, I was outselling the other six people put together like I would sell as, oh, as wow. many or more as the rest of them using my approach uh, and and I was doing stuff back then like creating systems and I was um, you know I had a little folder system I actually realized that if I were to sell a car that I would need registration details and I would have trade-in details and that I would have to 
book a time for delivery and I actually had it all systemized in advance like I had these little packs an envelope with all the contract details I would need in advance so I'd sit down and go through it and I'll never forget the day that I left that place it was a race to my desk to see who could take my system who could grab my my bottom (laughs) drawer they were fighting over my bottom drawer which was laid out like a a to z file of, of step one two three four five six and I was building an evidence manual, I called it, with um, press articles about, you know, favorable write-ups about the models that I was selling and comparison stats against our competitors. And I learned so many valuable lessons in that business that are still true in my own business. And little things like I would have a quote book and, you know, when I started, I would write out the, the quote tear it out, give the customer a copy and they would hop in their car and drive to the next dealer and purchase and I would miss out on the deal. And so I stopped doing quotes after that. It was a very bad idea and I still don't really do quotes <laughs> in my business anymore. It's it's like, let's just identify the, the right solution and then we can do business. Right, right. Let's let's find a, uh, a win-win situation in, in nice corporate speak. So okay, so uh, you you went from uh, from this salesman uh, sales position over to uh, Mercedes, and so was it was it a lateral move or did you uh, step up when you moved over to Mercedes? It was almost a step backwards in one way. Uh, I had just won a, a trip away uh, as part of my prize, which I forfeited when I moved across, and. You know, within a few weeks, I was holding the key to the dealership because I was the only person that could reliably turn up on time and I was responsible. <laughs> so I had this sort of... Another ass- business lesson right there. <laughs> yeah, I had this uh, assistant uh, managerial uh, responsibility. The other thing, obviously, I realized that the secretaries go home at five o'clock on the dot. So if I were just to stay till six o'clock, then I had one hour of ringing up decision makers without a gatekeeper. And that's when most of my sales were done was after hours. So I was the first person there and the last person out. That's a side story. So yes, it was just to a straight sales role. And the the main reason that I moved was I f- had bumped into a friend of mine who had told me that people who work at Mercedes didn't work Sundays and they got a really nice car to drive and they earned more commission per sale. So it was simply a, a case of getting a better deal for myself and understanding my value because in 1996, I think I delivered around 185 BMWs for $78,500 or thereabouts. And the following year, my first year at Mercedes-Benz, 2007, I delivered 115 Mercedes-Benz roughly for about $115,000. It was a substantially better deal. And I didn't have to work Sundays. You know, to be able to turn my phone off on Sunday and have a day with my family, like one day a week, was incredible. That was my first move towards building a business around my lifestyle. <laughs> it's, yeah, one, one day. <laughs> but but that, that is actually a pretty big move. Let, let's kind of go into... Like why? Like why? Like uh, why were you doing all this? Because we've we've gotten you here. You're you've moved into this position. You're you're doing really well. But it, but uh, there's so many other ways to have made money. Uh, and and you said you know you you found that you were good at sales. But but why were you working so hard? Why were you doing those seven days a week? Well, was, uh, I absolutely had to bring in the income. Just it's very expensive living in Sydney. It's one of the most expensive cities in the world. We have a very high tax rate. Uh, food and, and clothing and drinks, everything's expensive compared to other countries, as I found out as I travel. So it was just a basic need. I needed to make I needed to make $70,000 a year when I got that sales job. That was the criteria. I even said to the, the manager, I'm not interested in this job unless I can make more than $70,000 a year. My next goal, when I went to Mercedes, my goal was to smash that six figures. I wanted to make 100K a year. That was my my goal. I'm very goal focused. And I did. And within 12 months of that switch, I was number one Mercedes salesperson in Australia. So that was when I realized that it wasn't just the, the brand that I was selling. It wasn't just luck. It wasn't just location of the dealership. It was now... It was me. It was my ability and the way the process that I was using to 
get the results. So it was a very important move in terms of building my self-confidence. And uh, once you once you reach goals like that, then the next logical step is to reset them and make them more assertive and to stretch yourself to the next goal. So my, my next goal was I wanted to be the manager. I, I really wanted to be the manager because that would step me up uh, above the 14 or 15 salespeople. I wanted to get to that next stage. So I was you know, locked in on that. And the other things that made it nice were they had really good trips, you know, uh, winning these <laughs> prizes. I was, I was uh, sent to Tahiti and to Fiji and to New Zealand and uh, Queensland to, to Port Douglas on these really extravagant week-long trips with your partner. And, and I was really focused on those trips. So I wanted to win those prizes. And I, I actually liked the feeling of being the best and winning and uh, and bringing in a higher income than many of my peers, uh, it it made me feel like I was doing something with purpose. Uh, and it wasn't till many years later that I realised I had to have my own business. And that that you know all of that's forgotten <laughs> when you go, you leave the same. Uh, you know, the people miss you as much as they miss the hole when you pull your hand out of a bucket of water. You know, it just quickly everything just quickly takes your place, and and everyone right. forgets you. So, uh, so you, so you were mentioning about liking to win. So, were you, um, you know, big sports, uh, big into sports as a kid? What kind of athletics were you into? Man, you're very intuitive. Uh, I was not an achiever at school at all, academically or physically. I was an asthmatic, and I was a little bit young for my year. So, all the kids were a bit older and a bit more mature and stronger than I was. So, I made up for it by not playing uh, football or cricket or tennis, all the school sports that they forced you to play at this fancy school that I went to. And I actually got a permission to go windsurfing and sailing. My, my grandfather had given me a, a boat. Uh, he used to sail and he, he wanted me to sail as well. So he gave me a boat and it was sort of an old rotten one and we fixed it. And <laughs> I started from the age of seven and by the time I was a teenager at, at school, I was windsurfing every day after school when all the other kids were playing sport. And I, I really had a good feel for it. And I got involved in um, small dinghy sailing and then, and then into a class which you probably have never heard of called an 18-foot skiff. And if you, if you look it up on Google, 18-foot skiff is what they, they race on Sydney Harbour. It's the most prestigious small boat sailing that you can do. And by just when I had this first sales job at BMW, I had to give up sailing, but I had, had just reached uh, second in the world titles. So I'd basically gotten to an elite world level in that sport. And again, sailing has amazing lessons that can carry through to business because it's a team sport, but you also have, uh, you're, you're versing the elements. It's never the same race ever you right. have you have um variable uh choices to make you had three different rigs to choose from so you had to make the best choice to, to strategize for the race it's very tactical uh it's it's an endurance thing it's a physical strength thing it it, it is um individual ability plus that team combination and you know you have to also maintain your equipment and and innovate and come up with better ways to deal with things you know come up with um innovations and the the guy that I raced with was very innovative and he used to push the design to right to the edge sometimes too far uh, <laughs> but but it it was really fascinating to take all these lessons and then to push myself into into total discomfort with a a sales role and uh, so I I almost literally hopped off the the sailing mission and onto the learn selling mission and just carried through that momentum yeah, yeah, because I've seldom met anyone who really loved to win, and and a lot and like sales guys, like top sales guys, they love to win. Most of them, very very few of them, were not athletic when they were younger. They they had to have some sort of competition. They they had to compete against uh, against people to I guess prove their metal. Uh, so it carries over to sales. That is such as a word you use, tactical type of mindset. So you went from being this very tactical person 
to uh, into a managerial position. So how did that how did that work out? Like how, what kind of mind shift did you have to make? Well, there's there's an interesting story around that one as well. I was the top salesperson in the dealership and I was starting to have this danger of the same thing that happened to me at Vodafone where they were probably going to be reluctant to put me in a management role because I was too valuable as a salesperson. I was bringing in hundreds of thousands of dollars of profit and the sales manager actually fell down some stairs and was out of action for seven or eight weeks. Uh, no, I didn't push him. And <laughs> when he was out of action, the not, boss, not that competitive. Well, the boss actually put me in the chair and said, "You, you just cover for him." And what happened then was I had to have a massive mindset shift where I, instead of competing with all my sales buddies and trying to get the best stock and uh, you know race for the best customers, I now had to support them and nurture them and and fill in the the gaps that's when I realized how crap they were with paperwork and how terrible they were with follow-up how incredibly poor they were at at um, basic human interactions and I realized why I was winning so I actually started filling the gaps for these people and I I mean this in not a a, in a selfish way but uh, I actually had to adjust to being more selfless I had to had to help them where I would normally I was completely oblivious to their gaps only the sales manager saw that and it was obvious t- to me that that I needed to help them to lift up but what happened was in that period where the sales manager was away we sold nearly twice as much as we would normally sell and <laughs> it, then I think what happened is the uh, the person in charge of the dealership realized that if I was a manager then we would sell more than me as a salesperson and what happened was he pushed another sales manager out of the role and brought me straight into it so within two weeks I was a sales manager because I proved my performance in advance I took away all the risk because I'd already proven the results that I could get yeah, yeah. I think that's something tough for a lot of people who are like starting their careers is they think they can do something, but their superiors are not allowing them to get the opportunity. You happen to get the opportunity uh, partly because of of a guy's accident, but why they pick you? Uh, it's a good question, and and I'm going to answer that concern people have. It's easy for people to outperform their peers, even if you're a supermarket checkout clerk. Just be better with the customers and always balance the till. Bag people's groceries better. You can always outshine your competitors. The reason I got chosen is because I was the person who would turn up early and stay back late, would never have customer complaints, would sell more than everyone else, and was just a dream come true employee for the employer. I made life easy for them because I understood their needs. When, you, when you're in a sales role or any kind of employee role, it's not just your customer. Your boss is also your customer. So I was selling upwards as well as selling outwards, if, if that makes sense. And I ended up being the person that handled all the special customers. I ended up dealing with famous movie stars like Russell Crowe and the richest person in Australia at the time, the billionaire family, the Packers. And I was also dealing with with the ex-prime minister, the guy that used to run the country and the guy in charge of the Sydney Olympics and you know so on and so forth I, I got to deal with all the superstars and the famous people because I was reliable I was trustworthy I had integrity and this is a theme that will come up everywhere in my business that is the number one hook that I'll hang my hat on that gets you out of just about every possible scenario uh, if you have integrity people want to be associated with you they're, they're happy to employ you they're happy to be a customer of yours they're happy to work with you they're happy to partner with you it opens a lot of doors okay uh, let's let's actually define integrity because I, I think a lot of people they, they know the word you know they've heard it they they know they should have integrity they, they know these things but what's it, what is integrity in action? Integrity means like coming together. It's it's uh, in full. Like it's there's um, it's you're consistent 
with what you know your principles your your values uh, people can expect something and reliably get the outcome it also it's like honesty it 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 isn't actually that difficult is it <laughs> you know it, uh, it it's something that i think i think what people have the hardest time with in having integrity is that their own self-interest tends to override the self-interest of of who they're trying to sell to or or interact with and then that short-term thinking is what destroys their own integrity yeah, it's like all they. The problem is they um, start following a douchebag and start doing things that they even know are wrong. But because someone else has done it, they think that's okay. It's like all those snaky MLM scams and and um, CPA offers for instant riches. You know, in their heart of hearts, if people if people think about what they're doing, they know that it's wrong and they shouldn't do it. But that just perpetuates and so on and so forth. The next thing our inbox is clogged up with junk. It's just it's just not good for humans. So that's really the the metronome that I judge things on. Is this good for humans? Uh, and if if it if not, we shouldn't be doing it and we shouldn't support it or be associated with it, which is you know, I'm it's tragic that you had a bad first impression of me and if I could go back in time and figure out what caused that, I would reverse that because it's everything I stand against. Right, right. And yeah, that was that was so many years ago. And I don't know what it was. Uh, it may have been a, a product or one that you promoted or something. Uh, I don't know if it was yours. It may have just been one that had been promoted. But something like was like, oh, no, here here's another one, right? Yeah, it would almost certainly have been a product I, I promoted. And, you know, like I, I've seen um, even your free information product that you give away to um, the Foolish Adventure subscribers. It references a, a major product that if people will get on that list, they're going to be hit with many, many other offers. And, <laughs> you know, like I could say that the shoe's the other way. However, luckily, I've been exposed to enough of your material to know exactly what you stand for. And that's why I resonate so strongly with your message. Right, right. Yeah, that's uh, that's the biggest downside with uh, the product launch formula that, that you're talking about is that it's so ingrained into the IM way of doing business, which is the, the hard sell uh, scarcity of a digital product, which is, is kind of crazy. Uh, but the product itself Beyond beyond the way it's marketed, beyond the people who associate with that product, the product itself is really good. And so that, that is the, the, the tricky side is that something like that can get this horrible misperception like I got of you. Yeah. It was um, uh, it, it just just because of the people around the thing. Uh, can end up causing the the thing itself to be devalued by other people. Exactly. I I bought PLF one and two and two point whatever two point one. Uh, the, the guys running it are fantastic friends of mine, Jeff and John. And the thing is, the reason it's uh, you know, and I used it in the car dealership, which is a different side story to make millions in just two days. So the, it actually works. It's a fantastic product. The problem is a lot of people who start to set up their business to be only a promotion then have to use affiliated promotions in between to puff up their income. And that's when you start getting pounded with these ridiculous offers uh, that, right. that are insincere and start to erode the credibility. And that is why I've um, unsubscribed and disassociated from every single person that is likely to be in the usual catchment for that sort of thing. And I don't actually seek out... Uh, fame and and uh, notoriety. You know, I'm not trying to be a super guru. All I'm doing is quietly putting out products and services that solve problems. And if people find me through my natural uh, power, then that's fine, and that that's really the way it should be. Let's go into. The, this idea of you starting your search engine optimization web design companies, were you still actually with the dealership when you started doing that? Or did you quit and then start selling uh, web services? Oh, that's a great topic. It, it's actually one of the last things I did in the in the scheme of things. It was like business number nine or ten. So um, chronologically, 
it's towards the end. It's just the one that I've made the biggest. I've, it's it's the first business I've built that does over a million dollars in sales a year. Uh, you know, I built that by myself. I actually started it in a workshop that I did after I left my job. So it was quite a long way down the track. I still had my job uh, probably when you... I just left my job when you heard that interview that, that you were referencing before. Um, and my my first real business was affiliate marketing. And I built that up to around $150,000 a year. I'm just going to give rough numbers because it's now five or six years ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I've been out of a job for over four and a half years and the numbers start to get fuzzy, but the, the point is exactly the same. I was doing affiliate marketing primarily with one product and people can't believe this, When I, especially when I tell them, you know, I used to make uh, $5,000 a month and then eventually I got close to that $10,000 on average for this one product and then I started creating information products of my own to support that because I identified that the market of people who didn't own the product I was promoting was smaller than the market of people who already had the product. So I started making information products for people who already had the product and I took that complementary marketing strategy and by combining them I got to that uh, $10,000 a month mark and I was doing that while I still had a job. So I was, if you can imagine this, I was running a, a team of 70 something people. We were doing over $50 million a year in sales. I was working uh, five and a half, six days a week. Not too far from home, I had two company cars. I was earning around $300,000 a year, plus I had my affiliate income and information product income of around 150. And my goal was I must replace my income before I quit. And uh, uh, the, the big break point was... I took a, a holiday one week. I always take one week holiday back then. It was like a maximum I could go without things just blowing up and, and becoming very painful uh, with that many people and things just get out of control so, so quickly. And I took a week off. I grabbed John Reese's Traffic Secrets, which I'd bought on sale a year and a half after it came out. I watched the whole thing start to finish and I'm like, damn. I'm already doing that. I've done this. I had 75% of it I'd figured out. The other 15% were little knickknacks like, you know, clone your existing business. And I'm like, oh, that's so simple, but it makes sense. So I I went out, I got another server. I set up a website for my wife to start competing with me with the same affiliate program. And I doubled the revenue on my affiliate business. And Uh it's like, I have to go to the United States and I have to get in front of the, the most current thinking. So I hopped on a plane. I went to LA for the first time since I was 12. And you know, I really couldn't afford the leave. I couldn't afford the time. I put it on the credit card because I had shares. I had, uh, this was before the American finance fallout. I had a mortgage. I was paying off a house, you know, that I bought for around $800,000. And I just went there and I sucked it in, in that, that underground, uh, online underground marketing event number four in Los Angeles. I just soaked everything in, made great contacts, learnt about uh, CPA marketing, cost per view traffic uh, from people like Mike Hill and I, I watched Eben Pagan speak and I, I just picked up all this stuff. Came back, I, I had this epiphany, you know, I've dealing, I've built websites for customers by this stage. I'd built two websites and I had this epiphany that I should be charging a recurring fee and this was a big switch for me. I did it with my affiliate income. I went from a one-time product to a recurring product and I thought, why aren't I going back to these customers and saying, listen, I'll do internet marketing for you. You pay me a fee. So this was effectively the local business marketing strategy and I got two customers to say yes at $5,500 each plus websites on top. So I'd now reached my $300,000 a year annualized income and I bravely quit my job and uh, I, I bailed out on, on the job. And in hindsight, I think that was incredibly fearless and um, crazy, <laughs> but I did. <laughs> and you know, within the first month or so, I was making six figures a month doing a CPA affiliate marketing using multiple traffic sources, a cost per view and crazy stuff that probably wouldn't be that effective today, nearly five years later. Right. But I, I did it 
And you know, I went on from there to build internet marketing communities. And from there, I started running workshops. And from there, in one of the workshops, I built an SEO business as a middleman strategy with an external supply and external uh, traffic, like affiliate traffic. And I was the middleman taking a cut. I built that up to $600,000 a year roughly until I realized that the percentage of the margin was too small for me with that method. So I thought, you know what, my team are really good now. I'll just give them the work to do instead of the supplier and I'll start selling it myself and I turned off the affiliate program and here we are now, we do six figures a month of SEO alone and it's a powering business uh, with my own team with our own traffic and it's a beast and it's you know that's just one of our businesses and we still have other divisions but that's pretty much the story to how we got to to where we're at now (laughs) so what it can't be the money it can't be the money that's driving you through this because once once you've gotten your needs met then uh the money just becomes kind of a scoreboard so, so what is it that keeps driving you, that keeps driving you to make new businesses, to seek out leverage points in your own company, like the things that you were saying, you, you were a middleman at first, but then you decided you were going to leverage that out even further, leveraging the fact that you had customers all in a, a certain customer segment and started providing a bunch of different products and services that they would need. Uh, what, what drives you to create all that? You know, I'm not entirely sure, but but I am, um, you know, like I was absolutely determined to make a million dollars a year. That was most definitely a KPI that I'd set myself. I, I had to do it. Uh, then the next step was I had to make $2 million a year, right? I had to double it. And, you know, the next step for me is I want $10 million a year. So I still am numbers focused for some reason. And I do have all of the normal things that, that, people would aspire to. I do have a performance car. I do live in a huge house on acreage in Sydney. Uh, you know, I've got, I've got things that other people crave and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm living the life, I guess, if, if you like, uh, it, that's my adventure. And these were things that I'd visioned and thought about for a long time. I absolutely had that in mind way back when I was stuck behind a desk. I always felt that I was deferring the rest of my life until some day later. And just little things compound, you know, whether it's reading the four-hour work week and coming out with that lifestyle design sort of thing. Um, Of course, many years before that, I'd heard a guy talk about the idea that you could build a business to support your life. And... It didn't really click then, but it sort of locked in with with the reminder. Uh, But now I get a lot of enrichment from uh, my team. I've got a bunch of people who who work for my business, and it's so humbling to sit in in a fully crowded restaurant. If you can imagine sitting there looking around at 60 or 70 other people who you employ, then that is a it's a mega responsibility oh but my gosh yes it, it, you know you f- you fill an entire restaurant it's like two or three school classrooms full of people who depend on you so i actually like that uh, i like that uh, i like to serve and protect those people and I, I like to empower them and they have a much better lifestyle than they would have had in their previous roles so that's actually really satisfying um also, the, the things that that melt away when you leave that full-time employment and when you leave mortgages and stuff. When, like, I have absolutely not a dollar in debt. I have reserves of cash sitting in a bank account and that I, it, it really makes me sleep well at night. I, I don't owe anybody anything. I feel really comfortable that I can provide for my family. I've got four children and I... I guess I'm driven by that basic human need, you know, that, that I have shelter and food and, and security. And beyond that, I'm actually now learning to enjoy life and to experience things. I was driving a Ferrari around Marinello last week and I felt like I'd, I'd dreamt of that sort of stuff before. I've seen other people's things and I thought I'd like to do that. And, you know, damn it. I'm enjoying doing that sort of stuff and it's it's hard to let go sometimes when you've had that delayed gratification for for so many years. You, uh, you instead of getting addicted to the struggle, right? 
Yeah, you know, it's good to to shift it up a bit. And and when you don't have time constraints, you know, I only have three appointments every week. And I know, you know, almost every one of my friends or people around me are always busy. They're always busy doing things they have to do. And I just have three appointments uh, that recur every Tuesday for my mastermind that I run. Other than that, it's it's my own time. And that allows you a lot more thinking, a lot more reflection, I guess so. I guess I'm going through that philosophical phase now, where I'm uh, <laughs> moving through the next level of um, of life. That it go, you know, it's in that lifestyle part, but it's still super challenging. I'm not, I'm the most excited I've ever been about business. I love dealing with people. I, I love the travel. I'm, I'm enjoying uh, attending the odd conference as a part, you know, as just as as a person in the audience watching and observing and. And I really like the experiment of growing my own business. It's it's fun to hear concepts and then to apply it and then to be able to teach that. And I'm definitely known for teaching things that actually work. Like I'll take a case study where I've, I've made something happen and then I'll teach other people exactly how I did it and let them implement it into their business and they can go out and help other people with that. And that's really exciting to be able to create that value. You feel... I guess a form of um, accomplishment, and uh, it's it's just nice to participate. And I guess ultimately, all we all want to be uh, recognised or or uh, feel that we're needed in some way. So I guess maybe there's a bit of that going on. <laughs> yeah. So so a lot a, a a lot of things that contribute to what's keeping you keeping you going. So, so you were you were mentioning you've got these three appointments that you that you have to keep that you've promised to other people, but the rest of the time is meant for reflection and thinking. But you're a machine. Uh, I mean, you are putting out tons and tons of content. You're managing a staff of seventy plus people. You're traveling back and forth to the Philippines, and you're keeping this this whole system not just running. But growing uh, quite uh, quite rapidly. What it's uh, your business has doubled uh, nearly every year for the last few years. Yeah, it's it's getting harder now though to double. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <I'm> getting, <laughs> you know, the, the percentage is starting to creep down a bit, which is you know. But here's the funny thing: I still view that I'm in my apprenticeship phase. I still think that there's another level to get to and a, another refinement that can happen and and. I always use contrast as my weapon of mental uh, encouragement. You know, I, I, I look at and observe at other people and other scenarios and I think, yeah, I think I can do that. And I make it a little stretch for myself. So I, I have a look at, you know, you can look at, there's plenty of younger people than I am making tens of millions of dollars a year. So surely I could just pull up the $10 million dollars you know, with a uh, say a thirty to forty percent profit margin, I'd be really happy with that as my next sort of tick in the box, and say, well, you know, because I know if I can do that, and I really actually believe that I can, then I believe that that is definitely going to deliver a lot of value to other people, just as a byproduct, because you can't create that without delivering value. And secondly, it's something that I could help other people achieve as well. And and it takes the strain off things like social security and uh, unemployment benefits and you know, people who, who are not empowered to be able to educate themselves and stuff. It allows you a lot more options. This I, I want to I'm a big per, a believer in mindset because most most of the problems that people have in getting a business started, keeping one running, growing it all stem from what's going on between their ears. And you said about a belief, you actually, you truly believe that you can accomplish a $10 million a year goal. And, and I, I see myself the same way. I, and I, and most entrepreneurs that I've ever met believe they can change their environment. They look around, they say, I can, I can change this because otherwise you wouldn't take action on anything. If you didn't truly believe you could make a, make a change in it. So what kind of advice can you give to people who don't believe that, that wherever they're at right now, they just don't believe it? Well, it's, I'd ask them to look for an example of something that they've accomplished before that could build up their reserve of confidence. 
Because I, th- I just think it comes back to, it's simply just a matter of fear and excuses. So most people will tell you in one breath that they're sick of their job, they don't like it, and they, they want to have their own business. And then that afternoon, they'll sit down and watch TV for three hours straight. They, they really are probably holding themselves back because they're scared of what could happen if they did succeed. The, the fear of the unknown is such a killer and it's rife in society. You know, from the time you're a kid, there's going to be some boogeyman under the bed that will get you after the lights turn off. Uh, uh, and then, you know, I'm not going to wade into religion, but there's an extreme example of fear-based uh, management of people with with various religions um, that affect billions of people around the world. But there's many other examples um, that we could point to where we've been conditioned to be scared and I think if you can unlearn that if you can say well you know what I don't need to tiptoe to get to death safely I think I'm just going to just risk a little I'm going to um, say well, who cares you know not not worry about other people so much and start looking in the mirror more and being accountable to yourself yeah, that, that was something that I've tried to get across to my audience is that most of the rules out there are not there to benefit you. They're there to control you. They're there to um, give a few people a lot of power. Most things in life are not right or wrong. There's There are a few. There are a few things that are right. There are a few things that are wrong, but everything else is uh, basically in the middle. As long as you're not committing fraud on other people, you're not doing violence on other people, there's a lot of things that you can do. And a lot of it, it that's holding us back, as you say, uh, you were saying, so a lot of social structures, the people we're hanging around with are a big factor in whether or not we believe we can succeed. Even people who love you will tell you, oh, don't go do that because they, they're they afraid uh, that you're going to get hurt and they're also afraid that you're not going to get hurt, that you're going to succeed and you're going to leave them behind. And th- so your social structure can have a huge impact on the way your life turns out. Yeah, so I would say look for some scientific evidence of success that you've achieved in the past. You know, even if you want to just take it back to the fact that you were born versus all the other potential sperms. I mean, that's one foundational belief that can help people. Like you're already, you've already done quite well to exist. Uh, you know, and, and secondly, there's probably many, many examples of where you've done something clever or good that you can lock in and build up your account of self-esteem or, or belief in your own ability. And and if I were to look back uh, to how to, you know, if I were to build a bridge from where I was to where I got to now, it's just locking in those wins. And it's okay to win and it's okay to, to um, do something good and to feel good about it. And so, you know, when I when I hit those little milestones, for me, that was like, like, it took me years to believe that I was actually good at business, even though other people would tell me and the, the, the facts and the statistics would show me. But I think I had to do a lot of uh, training of my brain after I was a child, after I left home and when I became an adult and when I went out into the real world. And I've read a lot of books and I've pondered a lot of things, but I'm, I'm always thinking about it. And it's something I think we can learn and we can continually improve. You just have to be open to it and you have to be prepared to question all of your assumptions. You know, always be challenging your assumptions because nothing is static. We're always changing. And if you can absolutely master change and become fearless, there's no challenge that can throw you uh, you know, even if you, I'll give you a real life example. I, I got off the airplane from the United States via Heathrow into Frankfurt and I, I got a hire car and I'm driving on the wrong side of the road in a foreign country with very little English on the street signs. But it doesn't even raise a pulse because I figure, well, other people drive on this side of the road. You know, millions of people do. Surely it's not that difficult. And I'm sure that most of the road signs are going to be, you know, roughly the same. So we'll just we'll just roll with it. And even if the worst thing happened and I had an accident, I've got a seatbelt and an airbag. So, you know, what's the worst that could happen? I guess I could have a terrible injury, 
back from that, uh, you know, maybe I'll just die instantly. And then back from that, probably not much at all, maybe a little a little bump and most likely nothing will happen at all. So I'm just going to let go of all the fear. And that's a little logical exercise I process uh, when I do something like jump out of an airplane for skydiving or when I'm, you know, going to, when I'm going to film something for camera that's going to be potentially seen by hundreds or thousands of people or when I... Uh, if I were to stand up on stage and present to 600 people, I think, you know, I work back from the worst possible scenario to make it into something that's ridiculous. And I honestly think that most people spend an, a ridiculous amount of time worrying about things that will never, ever actually happen. Well, it's that Mark, Mark Twain quote of uh, him being an old man and he's known many, many a pain but few of them ever happened. I, I, I know I've messed up the quote, but I'll link to it or something. But yeah, <laughs> cool. he was talking about, we make up all these, all these different tragedies that happen in our lives and they don't, they don't really exist. They, they may never happen. I like to call it uh, finding out what the true probability of death, dismemberment, or destitution. You know, if, if you know what that, the real uh, odds are of those three things happening to you because those are the worst three things that can happen to you in life. So if those three things uh, are a small probability in whatever it is you're doing, then you can't you then it's then I think it gives you as you were saying an you know am, ammunition against that fear. Yeah, and probably I learned a lot of things about what can happen and not happen as I was dragging people's cars down their driveway uh, as I'm repossessing it on a tow truck. Uh, you know, they can insult you, they can threaten to kill you, even wave a gun or a knife at you. Uh, but if you survive that, then then excuses tend to melt away, especially when you're just on the telephone. I used to say to my salespeople, look, they can't hit you over the telephone. So what have you got to fear? <laughs> and, and, you know, that would help them <laughs> overcome they, they core reluctance. They talk to you angrily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they can scream at you or hang up. But does that really, is that really going to impact your life in a, in a detrimental way? So you do go through that psychological challenge. Yeah, uh, coming over that fight or flight res- uh, response, you know, it, it happens. And, and I'm sure you still have it uh, happen in your life. And we never get over fear. I mean, it's part of being human. Uh, things scare us, and and it's the it's the ability to overcome that fight or flight uh, response in those critical moments. Because once you once you make that, it, you get so much stronger afterwards, mentally stronger, physically stronger. Once you've gotten past that, you you've gotten control over that fear. In the moment, you know, fear is going to come again, but in that moment, you get past it. It's an awareness thing and an understanding that it exists. And and in my case, I just do calculations around it and, and that becomes a new sort of benchmark. Okay, well, I can handle this level of uh, uncertainty. Uh, uh, so that now becomes the standard. It takes a lot for me to get rattled these days. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I bet. I bet. Well, James, I, I literally could go on for another couple of hours with you, but I'm, I'm going to let you get back to your French connection here and enjoy your uh, your holiday in Europe. I'll let you get back to that and your family and, and really enjoy your time there. And I, I really appreciate you coming on. So one, one last request is, do you have any final words of wisdom for anyone listening, whether they're a beginner or someone who is running a company making a million a year? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, you should create a routine for yourself wherever you're at, even if you're working a full-time job or if you have absolute freedom, then I think a routine is what eventually sets you free and gives you that capacity to move forward and I know that that's that's been the it's the probably one of the least talked about things because few people ever get to the point where their inbox is clear or their schedule is clear and I've gotten to that point that's when routine can can help you more than any time it 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 appears to help you the most when you're really busy but it actually helps you the most when when you free up so create a routine that gets you the result you want and then see if you can fit everything that you need to get done around that and where possible have that routine fit in as much as it can with the things that you need to get done so that you're not burning up 
excess willpower and uh, resource to manage that routine. Yeah, fantastic. That that is that's like a whole nother topic that I would I would love to talk about because every very successful person I've ever met is diligent about their schedule and they they have certain things that they do and every one of them has said it gives them so much liberty in life by having these routines. Yeah, I'm happy to come back and talk about it. In, in terms of um, podcasting and Tim's, uh, I'm sure we could probably speak just as often, if not more often, than my Freedom Ocean co-host, Timbo, who's very busy these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, that's, that's good in one respect, but you know that, that's a great show to listen to, and people should definitely go check out uh, Freedom Ocean. That's, that's the, the show that made me realize just how wrong I uh, my perception was from years ago so also uh, people should go check out like what one of your 800 businesses you've actually compiled a lot of your businesses into like one news center and that, that what, what's the name of that site superfastbusiness.com perfect uh, go go over there get on James list and uh, and uh, I, I get the weekly digest so sign up get the weekly digest of of the different training that he sends out because he sends out stuff on SEO, traffic, and all sorts of stuff. So uh, definitely do that. And so I hope you've gotten a lot of value out of this and definitely some great inspiration. I know I, I've been inspired. I didn't talk as much as I normally do on this show because I was you know, engaged in listening to what James had to say. And I hope you enjoy this and go out and take action on what you've learned here today. And until the next time, enjoy your foolish adventure. You've just listened to The Foolish Adventure Show with Tim Conley. To get more straight talk about making money online and building a successful internet business, go to foolishadventure.com. There, you can opt into the Freedom File newsletter. You'll also get access to the Foolish Guide to Launching Products video training module, over an hour and 20 minutes of business building knowledge that can generate tens of thousands of dollars for your new product. Enjoy your foolish adventure. Foolish Adventure.